to see all you guys. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our series on community. Last Sunday I preached a message that was targeted at women, and today I've got men in the crosshairs, so prepare yourself. Um, men were designed for relationship. That might sound surprising to some of you, but God designed men for relationship. Men were not made to do life alone. But oftentimes, men end up alone or end up with relationships that don't really go past the surface. So why is that? Why do men oftentimes end up in that place? I would venture to say that shame is probably the number one reason why men end up in the place of having relationships that don't go very deep. Sometimes they feel like I'm not enough, I'm messing up, I'm falling short, I'm not measuring up, and because of that, I keep people at arm's length. I believe that when you get a man out of a place of shame, that relationship will be the natural byproduct. So that's what I want to look at today, is how to get men out of the place of shame. I want to talk about someone in the Bible who is someone who isn't very well known. It's not a character in the Bible that maybe some of you have even heard of before. It's a man by the name of Shamgar. Shamgar, we meet him in the book of Judges, and there's really only a couple scriptures that speak about Shamgar, and I want to read those scriptures to you today. The first one I'm going to read to you is the second scripture about him. It's in Judges chapter 5, verse 6. It says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers took to winding paths. And then the second scripture is Judges 3, 31. It says, After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the highways were abandoned. They were not passable. So people who wanted to get from one place to another, they had to travel on these tiny winding paths that went through the hills and the mountains and the deserts to get where they had to go. In order to understand what's happening here, I think it would be helpful to have a little bit of a better understanding of what's taking place in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is about God's people, the Israelites, in a failing and failed society. Judges 21-25 says that there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a time where everyone was deciding what was right and wrong based on their own standard. They were making that decision themselves. Everyone had their own truth. People became their own God, they became their own king, and they did their own thing. There was no leadership in place, there was no standard for society to say this is how people should live, so everyone just decided what was right on their own. This is where the Israelites' enemies, the Philistines, enter the picture. When the Philistines saw the chaos in the Israelite society, they saw it as an opportunity to strike. Since no one can get along, since no one can get on the same page, we will invade Israel while they are weak. Now you don't have to read the Bible to see what this looks like. All you really have to do is look out your window. All you have to do is turn on the news to see what it looks like to live in an eroding society where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. 
There's no agreed upon central standard for how people should live. Everyone just decides what's right and wrong on their own. I think probably most people feel a little bit helpless in this type of society. They feel helpless to bring about a change. Like you're not happy with the way the world is going. You're not happy with the way society is trending. But what am I supposed to do about it? You feel powerless to influence society. The days that we live in are very similar to the days that the book of Judges was written. And into that society comes a man named Shamgar. Now Shamgar is just a normal guy. As it turns out, Shamgar is a farmer. He'd probably feel pretty comfortable in Wyoming County. Shamgar's tool of choice is a tool that he's familiar with. It looks a little bit like this. It's called an ox goad. It's a tool that's sharp on one end and has a chisel on the other end. Shamgar would walk behind the ox that are pulling the plow, and when the ox got stubborn and didn't want to move ahead anymore, the ox got tired, Shamgar would take the ox goad and he would poke and prod the ox to get him to continue to move ahead to get the field plowed. And if, he, if the plow ran into a rock and wasn't able to move ahead or ran into some roots, Shamgar would take this end of the ox goad with a chisel on it and he would use it to pry out the rocks to clear the field and to break up the roots so that the field could take the seed and could grow. This is important because Shamgar is in the middle of an eroding, failing society like we are. But he didn't start out as a judge. Shamgar started out as a farmer. He looked at the eroding society around him and he started where he was. It's the first thing that I see in this scripture is that we need to start where we are. Shamgar started where he was. He started as a farmer. He didn't wait until he was in a position of authority. Oftentimes people think if I had more money, if I had more influence, or if I had more power, if people even knew who I was, then I would do something. But I don't, so I can't. And God is telling you today, if you wait until all of that stuff is in place, then you will never do anything. You've got to start today right where you are. Many times we sit back and wait on God, and God is saying he's tired of waiting on us. Many times men are guilty of procrastination. We say, oh, I'll get to it. And then it gets bumped further and further down the list, and it lives on the back burner, and then it never gets done. Procrastination is like a stagnant pool. And as it turns out, it's a place where shame grows. When I tell you to start where you are, I'm inviting you out of a place of shame and into a place of freedom. I want you to listen to this prophetic word from Peter this morning. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 17. He's quoting from the book of Joel. He says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. Shamgar started with a dream and a vision. Shamgar wanted to be able to take the highways to get where he's going and not have to take these winding little paths that take forever to get where he has to go. Men, God has given you a dream and a vision. Maybe your dream is a little bit dusty. Maybe it's been sitting in the attic of your life for so long that it's covered in dust and you can hardly even remember what it is. Maybe it's been buried for so long that you don't even think you have a dream or a vision. 
but God has given you a dream and a vision. Sometimes that vision starts like it did for Shamgar. It starts with being frustrated about a certain condition. It could be a condition of your family or your financial situation or your life or your kids or your job or your community or your country. It can start with that place of frustration. But a lot of times, men get stuck there. They get stuck in that place of frustration. Eventually, that frustration turns to anger, and then they become crotchety old men. They never learn how to use that frustration and take it to God and let it be molded into a vision that can be communicated to the people around you so that that vision can be run with. Sometimes guys get frustrated with their wives because they feel like their wives won't get on, the, on, the, on board with them or get on the same page as them. But you never communicated the vision in a way that it could be heard. All you did was complain and communicate frustration. Or sometimes wives are trying to follow a parked car that's not going anywhere. You're not following the vision that God has given you. You're just standing there. So then with a void of leadership, they create a vision on their own. Men, God made you to be a vision caster and a dreamer. Because the Bible says without vision, people will perish. The problem is when you don't have a vision from God for your life, you get sucked into this ditch on this side of the road, or you get sucked into this ditch on this side of the road. You either get sucked into the ditch of sin, or you get sucked into the ditch of insignificant things. Lord knows there's plenty of sin to get sucked into, and I think we all know what that's like. But I'm just as concerned about people getting sucked into insignificant things with their life. One day we had been in the midst of a, a busy season here at church, and I told the worship team there was a couple songs that I wanted to introduce, and it just kind of kept getting pushed down the list week after week because we were in the middle of a project and we were busy here. So I set aside some time in the afternoon, and I said, okay, I'm going to work on these songs this afternoon. I'm going to learn them, and I'm going to make lead sheets, and I'm going to send them out to the worship team, and I'm going to make it happen this afternoon. So I got my guitar, and I sat down at my desk, and I set my phone on my desk, and then all of a sudden I saw a notification on my phone. So I picked it up, and I looked at it, and it was a text message from a friend. And he sent me a video, and it was a YouTube video of fainting goats. Now... I didn't know there was a sect of goats that have an anxiety disorder and a neurological disorder, but this is true. There's goats that you can scare by either yelling at them or even just clapping. And these goats get scared and they freeze and then they fall on their back and their feet or their, I guess their hooves are just dangling in the air. It's kind of weird and it was kind of funny. So I watched about 10 seconds, 15 seconds maybe of this 10-minute this, uh, video. And I sent a text back to my friend and I said, that was funny. But it didn't stop there. My friend sent me 39 YouTube videos of fainting goats. Now, I don't think my friend lost an afternoon of his life. I believe he lost an entire weekend watching videos of these stupid fainting goats. I was like, dude, I can't watch these videos. Like, I have something I have to do. I have a vision for my life. I have a plan that God put in front of me. And that day, I was able to avoid getting sucked into the ditch of insignificant things. But I've seen a lot of guys get sucked into a ditch of insignificant things or sin and never find their way out. I thought about that in contrast to someone like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs started in this little garage, a little one-car garage on the side of his house. That's the house that they, uh, 
started building Apple in. And he had a vision, and that garage wasn't really all that different than any other one-car garage in their community, except for the fact that there was someone in that garage that had a vision, and they decided to start where they were. Now, he had a lot of things stacked against him. He didn't have enough money. He didn't have enough people. He didn't have a res- enough resources, but he had a vision to see a computer in every home in America. And at the time, that sounded completely ridiculous for two reasons. One, computers were huge, and they took up way too much room, and who could ever have enough room in their house for a computer? And two, even if they did put a computer in every house, what in the world would anybody do with a computer? Like, who could find any actual use for a computer? And that sounds crazy now, because as it turns out, that vision came to be, and there's a a computer in just about every home. But his vision didn't just stop there. Then his vision grew, and he said, not only do I want to see a computer in every home, I want to see a computer in the pocket of every person on the planet. Which again sounded crazy, because now they've whittled computers down to the size of like a tube TV, like it was just something about this big. How are you ever going to get that in your pocket? Now there's 1.65 billion iPhones that are actively being used on the planet attached to cell phone plans. 1.65 billion. That's 25% of the population that's alive on earth. And there's old people that have jitterbug phones and wouldn't even know what to do with an iPhone. And then there's little babies that wouldn't know what to do with an iPhone. But still, then there's third world countries where the people have never even heard of an iPhone. But still, 25% of the people on the planet have an iPhone in their pocket because Steve Jobs had a vision and he was committed to get started where he was. Shamgar started where he was. He saw this eroding society and the enemies of the Lord's people coming in to overthrow them. Okay, so I'll get started where I am, but what do I use? Shamgar got started where he was, and he used what he had. He used an ox goad. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to have to fight 600 guys, I would be in a world of trouble. Like, if I had to fight two or three, maybe I could hang and maybe I could make it happen, but 600 guys, like, that's a serious problem. And if I'm looking for a tool to fight 600 guys, I'm thinking like a helicopter with a machine gun hanging out the side or something like that. But Shamgar has nothing like that. All he has is this ox goat, this tool that he uses every day to prod the cattle and to break up the ground. That's the only tool that he has available to him. And Shamgar's got a lot of problems. You know, you have this vision that God has given you, this place that you want to get, and there's some problems between where you are and this vision of where God wants to take you. I don't know how many problems you have between where you are and this vision you have in your mind of what you want society, this world to look like. There might be a lot of problems, but Shamgar had 600 problems. That's a lot of problems. That's a lot of problems to deal with. But one tool under divine influence took care of 600 problems that looked impossible. When God wants to do something in your life, he doesn't need a lot of stuff. All he needs is complete control of what you have. All he needs is complete control of what you have. I want you to use what you have in submission to God. The problem is, I don't believe that most of us are actually submitted to the Lord. 
is Jesus really the Lord of your life? I think most of us would say, yeah, of course Jesus is the Lord of my life. But we go about our life, and we go about our day, and we kind of do what we want, when we want, how we want, without a whole lot of consideration for what does the Lord want? What does he want me to do with my life? What does he want today to look like? If I say to my kids, if I say that my kids are obedient, but I never ask them to do something different than the thing that they want to do, then that obedience is never really tested. I was thinking about Jesus who was in the garden about to go to the cross. And he knew how painful it was going to be. He knew he was going to be whipped. He was going to have a crown placed on his head. He was going to have a spear stabbed in his side. And he was going to experience separation from the Father. And he's in the garden and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Saying like, I don't know if I'm up for this. Like this sounds like it might be too much. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If you don't have a nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done happening every now and again in your life, there's a real good chance that it's because Jesus actually isn't the Lord of your life. He's not in charge of your life. You're in charge of your life. So what do you have? What is in your hands? What can you make available to God to get the vision accomplished? What are you good at? What skills do you have? What resources do you have? Offer that to God. I recently heard a story about a man when he was 17, his father was permanently paralyzed. His father owned and operated a construction company and at 17, this boy, who had only worked with his dad the last couple summers, told his mom, I think I want to run the construction company. He didn't have the necessary skills. He had no idea how to run a business. He was barely fit to be a person, just one of the guys on the crew of this construction company, let alone run the thing. He didn't know how to write up bids. He didn't know how to do estimates. He didn't know how to do anything. But he jumped in and he gave it everything he had. He would contact his dad's friends who were contractors at night when he would get home and he would ask them questions until they didn't have any more breath to answer his questions. He gave it everything he's got, he had. And it started to actually thrive and it started to go well. When he was 20 years old, he got married. And his wife had always had a dream of going to Hawaii. So for their honeymoon, they went to Hawaii. Hawaii was beautiful. They had a great time. They're on their way back from Hawaii and his wife said, wouldn't it be cool if one day we retired early and could go to Hawaii? He said, yeah, that would be cool. It was just kind of a, just a passing idea. But eventually it turned into a plan and a vision for their life. And they started making decisions based on this dream that they had to retire early by the time they were 40 and move to Hawaii. So he was working hard. I mean, he was up before the sun was up every single day. He was out there hustling, making it happen. He ended up having two sons. Eventually, he'd get home in time that the kids would already be in bed, and he'd wake them up, tell them he loved them, kiss them on the forehead, and put them back to bed. They made a lot of sacrifices to see this vision happen. By the time he was 30, he had 14 crews that were working for him. They were in the Kansas City area, and the economy was booming in this area. There was more people moving to Kansas City than there were houses available. And they got known as being the company that was one of the best home builders in the area. He kept building his crews and building his crews. By the time he was 37, they had enough money saved up that they could retire after they sold the company. 
So he sold the company. At that time, the company was booking out three and a half years in advance. He was, it was the most sought-after home builder in the area. He sold the company. They decided they were going to move to Hawaii and retire. So they go to Hawaii. They've been going there every year on vacation. They're very familiar with it. They love it there. They get to Hawaii, but this trip is different because this trip they're going to be looking at school districts and trying to figure out everything. While they're on the plane on the way to Hawaii, this man sits down next to him. This man sits down to him and they start exchanging stories about their lives and they find out they're both in the building industry. And This man worked with a lot of organizations like FEMA and Habitat for Humanity and they would go into places that had been devastated by natural disasters and they would rebuild those areas. So he thought that was cool and cool the way that God was using him in that industry. They went, ended up moving on to Hawaii. They said goodbye and they went about their way. They checked out these school districts. They ended up finding the school district they thought would be best for their kids. And they were started looking for a house and they had only a couple more days in Hawaii and they had lined up 12 houses to look at. Super full day for them. So they get to the last house they're looking at, and they said, this is the house. Like, it was on the water like they wanted. It had some of the amenities they wanted. It was perfect. So they put in an offer. They put in a really aggressive offer to try and get the house because they really wanted it. They, they left with their realtor. They went back. They got some food, went back to the house, and put the kids to bed. They were all whooped from the day of looking at all these houses. So they went to bed, but the husband was having a hard time sleeping. He was just felt kind of restless and... He didn't know if it was because of all this transition in their life or from just selling the, the company and that was his baby and he was working it every day and now it's not there or maybe because they didn't have a house lined up yet. So it was like 5 o'clock in the morning he finally decided to get up for the day and go on the beach, watch the sun rise and talk to the Lord. So he did that. He's walking on the beach, watching the sunrise, talking to the Lord. He's just saying like, Lord, I feel so unsettled. I don't know what's going on. Like, is this something we're not supposed to do or like, what's the deal? He didn't really get any clarity, and eventually he said these words that he's said hundreds of times. It was, a, it was his dad's motto for his life. He heard his dad say these same words over and over again when he didn't know what to do. So he said these words. He said, God, I don't know what you're asking, but the answer is yes. Immediately he felt peace flood his soul. The situation hadn't really changed, and he didn't know what was going to happen, but he felt at peace, and he believed that God was with him. He went back to their house, and they got the kids breakfast, and then they were getting everything packed up to head to the airport, and they got a call from the realtor. And the realtor said, I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you, but there was a bidding war, and the sellers ended up going with another offer. They're like, oh man, like that house was perfect. That really stinks. So they went to the airport, and the wife said, so what are we going to do now? And he said, well, we know what school district we want to be in, so I guess we'll just shop online and tell the realtors to send us any houses that come on the market. So they got on the plane, they got settled, and they're just about to take off, and the last person gets on the plane. And the last person who gets on the plane is the same guy who he sat with on the first flight. So he comes down, and of course, the guy's seat is right next to him again. So he sits down next to him, and they take off, and everybody's so whooped from their, fl from their trip that the wife and the kids, they fall asleep. And so he's talking to the guy, and the guy's showing him pictures of these houses that they re rebuilt for these families, and He's telling him all about the, the business that he, he runs. And he starts to wonder, God, are you asking me to go work with this guy? And he's like, oh my goodness. Like, 
I don't, I don't even want to think about that. Like everything in our life, from the time I was 17 until now, has led up to building this business, selling this business, retiring early in Hawaii. Like this was our dream. This is my wife's dream. Like I, I don't even want to hardly think about that. The guy showed him more pictures and he started to become more confident. Like, I think this might be what God wants me to do. Maybe that's why we weren't able to buy the house. So they're on the flight and he looks over at his wife who's sleeping and he's like, God, like I don't even want to bring it up with her. Like I don't even want to say anything to her. Like she was more excited about this dream than I even was. And the pilot comes over the intercom and he says they're going to start their descent into Los Angeles where they were going to catch a connecting flight. So when the pilot came over the intercom, his wife woke up and she looked at him and she said, what's wrong? He said, nothing. She said, something's up. And he said, no, nothing. She reached over and grabbed his hand and she said, I don't know what the question is, but the answer is yes. They go back to Kansas. They're on the phone with this guy 10 times a day for the next month or so. Two months later, they're moving, but they're not moving to Hawaii. There'd been a natural disaster. There was a hurricane in Louisiana and there was a bunch of homes that were devastated. They're on their way to Louisiana. The man who we met on the plane is going to oversee 10 homes being rebuilt, and he's going to oversee 10 homes being rebuilt. But his wife had an idea, and she said, what if we didn't just rebuild these homes? What if we actually rebuilt these families? What if we rented a house in Louisiana that could house all 20 families? And we brought them in, and we gave them whatever they need, whether they need medical service or counseling, whatever they needed, we would provide that for them. So they rent the house in Louisiana. The husband says, it's going to take 16 weeks to rebuild these homes. They said two weeks in, his wife has 95% of the people in the house saved. Says the house is a full-blown ministry center. They have VBS going during the day. They have drug addiction counselors coming in in the morning to work with people. They have marriage counselors coming in in the afternoon. Every day at 3.30, they have a worship service that everyone attends. These people's lives are completely transformed. And then when they're not out and about where there's natural disasters, rebuilding homes, they spend the rest of their time in Hawaii in a home that they bid on, that they were outbid on by the company that he now works for. And so now he stays in the home that they wanted to stay in all along, that they thought they would never end up in because they said yes to God. When we say yes to God, we change the world. We change the community that we're a part of. If you want to change the world, use what you're good at. Use the gifts that God gave you. If you're not happy with how society is going, get out there and actually do something about it. I hate to break it to you, but the world does not need another Facebook rant. It's not helpful. Take your gifts. Take the stuff that you're good at. Don't mix it with your anger, but mix it with Jesus' compassion and love for the world and get out there and do something in your community. And you have to learn to let your passion out. I want you to think about the woman with the issue of blood. She wanted to get through this crowd to get to Jesus to receive her healing. But the crowd was too thick and it didn't even look possible. But she fought and she pushed and she had faith and she made a way to passionately get through the crowd to Jesus who was not even planning to do a miracle. Because of her passionate pursuit, because of her expression of the passion that was in her heart, her desperation, she received a miracle. And we have blind Bartimaeus laying on the side of the road and Jesus is just walking on his way 
when Bartimaeus hears that he's coming, he cries out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone says, shut up. We don't want to hear you. He doesn't want to hear you. He's busy. He's going about his business. So he yells all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears his passion. He hears his faith. And he heals him. And he leaves, able to see that day. Or Jesus' first miracle, where he turns water to wine. Again, Jesus was not planning to do a miracle. He's just attending a wedding, attending a party with friends. And they run out of wine. And his mom says, will you come? Will you help? I think you can fix the situation. He says, no. He's like, no, it's not time to do that. I'm not here to do a miracle today. And I don't know what his mom said, but I guarantee he was passionate. Maybe she said, I bend you over my knee once and I'm not afraid to do it again. Maybe she said, Jesus, I've been raising you to make a difference in the world. Get out there and do your job. But her passionate cry led to a miracle that Jesus wasn't even planning to do. You have to let the passion out that God has put inside of you. I heard a story recently of a conductor. Uh, there was supposed to be a concert that he was going to be conducting in his area, and they planned, and they trained, and he worked with the musicians, and they practiced, and they practiced, and they practiced. It got to the day that they were about to uh, have the show, and he woke up, and he was sick. He felt horrible. He just kept thinking as the day went on, like, I'm going to get better. I have to get better. I'm going to get better. I have to get better for the show. But he didn't get better. He got worse. It's two hours before the show, and he can't even get out of bed. He's so sick. So he calls his friend who's a conductor, and he says, hey, like, is there any way you could fill in for me? His friend said, sure. So he got to the music hall as quickly as he could, and he ran out on stage, and he went to the podium to start looking through the music that he was about to conduct because he had never looked at this music before. There were five songs they were going to do. He's looking through the fourth song when the lights come on on the stage and the announcer introduces the musicians. They come out and they take their place in the orchestra pit. The man looks down and he says, well, I guess we're just going to have to wing it on song number five. So he starts conducting and everything's going well and he can't even believe how well it's going through the first four songs and he's thinking to himself like, man, I did this without practicing. This is, I, I'm kind of like this. I think I could do this. He gets to the fifth song they start it, and it's an intense song. It's the climax of the show. He's given it everything he's got, and then he sees this instruction that says, as loud as possible. So he starts conducting with all of his might. He's swinging his arms as fast as he can. Then he sees another instruction that says, even louder still. And he says, I wish I would have known even louder still was coming when you said as loud as possible because I'm giving it everything I've got. He's demanding everything out of these musicians. So he, he starts conducting with even more passion, even more might, everything he has to try and get these musicians to play louder still. And they do when all of a sudden his shoulder comes out of joint. He's conducting so passionately that his shoulder comes out of a joint. He's in excruciating pain, but he finishes the piece. There's a doctor who's sitting on the front row who runs up after the show and helps him put his shoulder back into place. After the show, there was reporters who were laughing at him, and they were talking about he was the first conductor in history to throw his shoulder out of joint while he was conducting. They came up to him after the show, and they said, how does it feel to be the first conductor in history to throw your shoulder out of joint while conducting? He said, I know some people who have reached middle age and have never become enthused enough to dislodge a necktie, let alone a shoulder. So I feel pretty darn good about it. 
You have to be willing to use your passion that God gave you. Shamgar passionately embraced the vision that God gave him. Passion is one of those things that you kind of use it or you lose it. And you know, I wonder if there are some men here this morning who have lost their passion for the vision that God gave them. I wonder if there's some men here this morning who are just kind of going through the motions, going through life, not really feeling a whole lot at all. I have good news for you. The good news I have for you is when you use the little passion that you have, it grows. It's like you build a little fire and the Holy Spirit blows on it and eventually that fire becomes so big that it's passionate almost seems like it's out of control. When you use what you have for God, it's like shame repellent for your life. Being accomplished in your life is not enough. You have to actually feel accomplished in the vision that God gave you for your life. And when you feel that, shame will fall off you and relationships will be a natural byproduct. So you start where you are, you use what you have, and you have to do what you can. It's time for the men of this house to cast off the victim's mentality. I've seen too many men that have sat back and said, somebody else did this and I have no power to change it. There's just nothing I can do. That's nonsense. There is always something that you can do. It might be small. It might seem like it's insignificant. But do what you can. Even if it doesn't seem like it's going to accomplish the vision, Start where you are and do what you can. And you need to stop talking about the good old days. First of all, the good old days were not as good as you remember. There was a lot of nonsense that went on in the good old days. And you look back with rose-colored glasses and you, see, you magnify the good things and you minifi, minif, minimize the challenges. It's nonsense. But let's just for the sake of a conversation say the good old days were as good as you think they were. How did they get that good? Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa got out there and busted hump and did everything they could to make those days what they became in your life. So how about you go out there and you do whatever is in your power, whatever you can do to make these days, to make today all that God said it could and should be. Shamgar was limited in what he could do. He was limited in the tools that he had. He was limited in the lack of help that he had. But he could take this ox go, this tool turned into a weapon, and he could fight the first person that came his way. He didn't look at all 600 men and say, I'm going to take out these 600 guys. If he would have looked at these 600 warriors, he would have been, uh, he would have been overcome. He would have been scared. It would have been too much to handle. He would have been intimidated. But he said, you know what? I can take the first guy that comes my way. He was going to do the first thing that he could do. And if you today will do the first thing that you could do, the first step in the vision that God has given you for your life, eventually you will slay the 600 giants in your life. Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can Shame is like kryptonite for guys in relationship. It erodes, but shame like mold grows in the dark. A couple of years ago, I was hunting with a friend. 
we were hunting on a piece of property we hadn't been on before, but we got permission to be on it. And so we were out walking through these woods, and it was a dark, wet, mossy area. And we stumbled upon this car, and this car was just covered in mold. I mean, every inch of this car was covered in this black mold. That car was not doing what it was made to do. It was not accomplishing the vision for its life. I have a car. I don't really wash it too often or do a whole lot to it to stop mold from growing on it, but it's out in the sun, and it drives around every day, taking me where I got to go. It accomplishes the vision I set before it. And because of that, because it's in motion, doing what it was made to do, mold can't actually grow on it at all. But that car that was in the woods that was just sitting still, not accomplishing what it was made for, mold grew all over it. And shame is kind of like that. When, when you're just sitting in a place where you're stagnant, without vision for your life, not moving forward to accomplish what God made you to accomplish, shame will just grow on your life. And before you know it, you're isolated and you push people away and you're alone. But when we take the first step, what, when we do what we can, shame begins to fall off of our lives. Will you bow your head? Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. Lord, I ask you to awaken vision in the hearts of men in this house. Lord, I pray for men who have uh, been in a place where they feel like they're not feeling a whole lot. Maybe men who have checked out of the game. Men who feels like there's not a whole lot of passion in their life anymore. Lord, I pray that as they take the first step, as they build that little fire and use the passion that they have, even if it's small, God, that you would blow on it. And Lord, I ask that a passion would erupt in the hearts of men in this place. That they would step up and begin to become the men that you've called them to be. Lord, I pray for faithfulness among the men of this house. I pray for fresh vision. That when they look around and they see things that aren't right, that aren't the way that they should be, that they see highways that have been abandoned and are blocked, that they would say, this shouldn't be this way. And they would start to take steps to change the world around them. Lord, I ask you to bless each one who's here this morning. I ask you to bless them as they go from this place. In your name I pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.